Well, she went down in history as America's greatest miser. In 1916, Hetty Green left behind an estate worth $100 million. In spite of having what would be the equivalent of a billion dollars in our day, uh, this is a woman who would eat her oatmeal cold because she said it cost too much money to heat it. Her son had to have his leg amputated because she spent so much time looking for a free clinic that what could have been an easy fix became infected and incurable and had to be amputated. She was wealthy, and yet she lived as a pauper. And I'm afraid that this story of this woman illustrates what some of us as Christians look like all too often, because we are those that God has blessed immensely, not just in terms of material wealth, but more importantly, something of lasting and greater value, the heavenly riches he's given to us, and yet so many of us live as if we were destitute. We're going to see today as we start a new series in the book of Ephesians that God has given us great riches. He tells us we've been blessed with every blessing in the heavenlies. And Paul wants the Ephesians in his day in the first century, as well as us as believers today and in our day, to understand what we've been given. So we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians, which I invite you to turn to. It's called Ephesians because it was written to the group of believers in the first century that were in the town of Ephesus. If you have been with us as we've walked through the book of Acts, you'll recall that one of the places Paul ministered was the town of Ephesus. In fact, it was the place that he had the longest ministry, being the pastor there for two full years. And so as we've been looking at the book of Acts and the things that have been going on, today what I want to do is take us down to a deeper level and see the things that Paul was teaching to the believers uh, during that time. Now, Ephesians, uh, as I said, was to the town of Ephesus, and it was a very wealthy city. Uh, In the town of Ephesus, there was a temple, the Temple of Artemis, and this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent structure, and it was a place not only where the pagan goddess Diana or Artemis was worshipped, but it was also one of the world's banking centers. This was a place where they kept Uh, immense amounts of money as well as some of the treasures of the world. So it's against this backdrop of uh, worldly wealth that Paul speaks to the believers about the wealth that we have as Christians. Now, as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, I want to begin with what Paul says in verses 1 through 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at that opening, he says it's addressed to those who are the saints. And some of you here may be like me. I was raised Catholic. And so when I hear the word saints, my mind immediately goes to uh, these people who were great, holy men and women of the past who have died and been canonized by the Pope. And yet that's not what the word means. Uh, The word saints is actually used of all of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, you're called a saint. The Greek word here is hagios. It literally means the holy ones. It has the idea and the meaning of being separated and set apart. And as Paul uses this word, as he writes to the Ephesians, he's not only reminding them of their high position, saying that you are a saint, you're somebody who's been separated from sin and set apart, but he's also reminding us of the responsibility we have to walk in a way that is worthy of our position. Now, as I said, uh, this word saint sometimes makes me feel inadequate because I think of those people that are, you know, 
the great people of the past. And it, it reminds me of a Far Side cartoon. Maybe you've seen it. It was a, a single panel cartoon, and it showed two cows that were grazing in a field. And as these cows are grazing, there's a, a milk truck that is passing by on the highway. And on the side of this tanker truck, it says in big red letters, pasteurized, homogenized, and vitamin D added. Now, one of the cows turns to the other one, and he says, it makes you feel a little inadequate, doesn't it? <laughs> and as you sit here this morning and hear that you're a saint, you may feel a little inadequate this morning. You may say, well, Roger, I don't really feel like a saint. And some of that is because we don't always live the way we should, do we? There are times we uh, are not separated from sin. There are times we are not set apart in the way that we live from the culture around us. And the good news is, is that God doesn't call us saints because of what we do. He calls us saints because of what he did. When his son, Jesus Christ, went to the cross and he paid that penalty of death that we owed, as he redeemed us, as he adopted us into his family, that's why we have this position and can be called saints. As Paul talks about uh, what God has done for us, he touches on this in his greeting because he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul could have used the Greek word karin here. Karin is a word that means greetings. So you'd think as you're opening a letter, like maybe you write a note to somebody, dear so-and-so, uh, Paul could have said greetings, salutations, whatever. He could have chosen a number of things other than charis, the Greek word for grace that he uses. But he chooses this word specifically, and he pairs it with another word, irene, which means peace. So Paul says to them, grace and peace. He, he, it, it, what we find in the Bible is it's through God's grace that we have peace. You can read Romans 5.1. It tells us, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're justified through faith, and through this we have peace with God, it says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us we're justified or declared righteous, not because of what we've done, but again, what God has done. Later in this letter, Paul will write the words many of you have memorized from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. There it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. What Paul wants us to understand is salvation is a gift of God. A gift is not something we earn. It's not something we pay for. It's something freely given to us. So when it comes to this idea of understanding what grace is, I like taking the word grace and turning it into this acronym that stands for God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Grace can be remembered as God's riches at Christ's expense because it's what Jesus did for us as he went to the cross, as he paid that penalty, as we are recipients of his grace, uh, this is how it comes about through what Jesus did. Paul tells us this in verse 7. It says here, in him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now today you noticed in your bulletin or on the title slide that we're only going to go as far as verse 6 in depth. And the reason for that is uh, there's a lot to cover here. As Paul is writing this letter, verses 1 through 14 are actually one single sentence in the Greek text. Those of you who are English teachers, you know you don't like these long, run-on type of sentences. Well, Paul, as he's writing this letter, the Holy Spirit is superintending the writing of his word. And Paul, the words are just flowing out of his pen. 
He's so excited. He's piling one great truth on top of another on top of another. It's almost like getting on a roller coaster where you know once the ride starts, it just picks up speed and you hit one high point after another after another. And this is Paul as he's writing about God's grace, as he's writing about the, the things that God has given to us. He just, he's just piling it on. As we go through Ephesians, what you're going to find is the book is divided into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 3 are where Paul deals with our position. He's, he's establishing who we are as believers, what Christ has done for us, what God has given to us. So that's our position. And then when we get to chapters 4 through 6, we're going to be dealing more with the practical uh, walk of what it means to walk worthy of the calling which we've received. And so he, he deals with our practice in the last part of the book. So what Paul's doing here is he's establishing the doctrinal position that we have as believers. And so you can think in terms of doctrine as how we're rooted in that. And as we are rooted in the understanding of God's grace and the things that he's done for us, that then allows us to grow and to bear fruit. You know, our, our, our vision statement here at Wayside says that we are rooted in the word. And what we want to do is help everyone as believers to understand what it is that God has done for us and given to us. And as we are rooted in the word, the Bible talks about abiding in his word. And it says, as we abide in his word, we'll draw from that and we'll become fruitful. And this is the picture that God has given to us. So Paul right now, as he's writing this letter, as he introduces it uh, to us, he's, he's just dumping the truck with all the great things that God has done. Now, as Paul shares these truths, another great truth he, he gives to us is the work of the Trinity. Sometimes people will say to me, Roger, the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible. You don't find the word Trinity, but you find the Trinity all throughout the scriptures. We see God at work. And as Paul is writing in verses 1 through 14, he gives us a picture of the Trinity and God being at work. He starts out by telling us here in verses 1 through 6 how God the Father planned our salvation. We're going to see he talks about how we were elected, how we were predestined. And so this is the work of God the Father planning our salvation. And then when we get to verses 7 through 12, we're going to see how God the Son, Jesus Christ, provided our salvation. And then he moves into what the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit does, as he seals our salvation in verses 13 through 14. Now, as I said, we're not going to be able to cover all of this today. But what he does is he, he prepares to share these great truths by saying in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. Now that word blessed there is the Greek word eulogetos. And if that word sounds familiar to your ears, it's because it's where we get our English word eulogy. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know that the program may say eulogy or we talk about eulogizing somebody. And that word literally means to speak well of someone. And when we eulogize somebody, what we're doing is reviewing the past, that person's life or deeds as they lived. And what we're doing is speaking well and reminding ourselves of what they've done. And this is what, what Paul is doing. He's, he's saying, blessed be God. Let's eulogize God. Let's talk about what he's done. And one of the great things that God has done for us, he says that we are blessed. It says God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, you'll notice I've highlighted those words in Christ because this is a major theme of the book of Ephesians. In fact, that statement in Christ will show up 27 times in this short epistle. Paul wants us to understand what it means to be in Christ. 
If you've ever gotten an email or a letter from me, you know that many times I will end my letter to you by saying, in Christ. Because I understand the beauty of this statement. I understand what it is, the, the, the depth of the truth that is there. And so this is what I remind myself and others of all the time. You see, as believers, that's our identity. It means we belong to Christ. Uh, let me help you understand it this way. Maybe you saw the movie Toy Story. And if you saw the movie Toy Story, you know that Andy, the little boy, would write his name on uh, his toys. Now, he had a lot of toys, but he didn't write Andy on all of them. All of the toys belonged to Andy. But the ones that were most loved by Andy, the ones that were most special to Andy, he would put his name on it. And essentially what Paul is telling us is we all belong to Christ, and he wants us to remember that we are deeply loved. And so it's like having in Christ written on us. But the Bible tells us God doesn't write his name on us per se, but instead he writes our names on himself. If you look at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, there it says, Behold, I've inscribed you. I've inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Now, God is speaking of the nation of Israel in particular there. But what he's telling them as his people, that they are so loved and so remembered by him that he's literally inscribed them on the palm of his hand. Now, when did God have a physical hand? Well, we fast forward to the New Testament when it tells us that God took on flesh and blood. As Jesus left his throne in heaven and he became Emmanuel, God with us, as he tabernacled among us, as he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, God took on flesh and blood. And so this is a truth that we can carry forward into the New Testament time for us today because what it tells us about those hands of Jesus Christ, you'll remember, is there were spikes that were driven through them. He had nails driven into the palms of his hand. And he did that because of his great love for us. God loved us so much that he went to the cross, that he spread his arms wide and he allowed himself to die in our place, taking our place to pay that penalty of death that we owed for our sins. That shows how much he loves us. And as you think of those nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ, we're told that we are, when we are in Christ, we are placed in those hands. You can look at John 10, 28 through 29, and it says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the picture we're given is that when we come to faith in Christ, we're placed in his hand and he closes it around us. And then it says God the Father closes his hand around. It's that picture of security. And, and what he says is no one can, can take us away. No one can snatch us literally away. Read the letter to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you read all through that great chapter and you get to the very end and Paul gives this long list. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He says, not angels, nor principalities. These are demons. He says, not height, nor depth. He, he goes all the way through this long list and he says, nor any other created thing. That includes you and I. Not even you as a person can remove yourself from God and his love. He said, I pay too high a price for you. You're mine. You belong to me. And he says, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hand and I hold you in those nail-scarred hands. Now, as you think in terms of our identity in, in Christ, so often we let the world define our identity, don't we? We think in terms of who we are by the position we hold. 
We think in terms of our identity by the stuff that we have. Maybe the the place where we live, the, the car that we drive, the clothes that we wear. But what God wants us to know as believers is our identity is not defined by the world. It's defined by who we are in Christ. And he says, all that stuff in the world is going to burn up and be gone one day anyway. But the things that God gives to us are in the heavenlies. It says we've been blessed with every blessing. Those things do not go away. And as we look at Paul writing here, he says in Ephesians 1.4, he tells how we become heirs of these blessings. It says he, this is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, when it says God chose us, this is the Greek word eklektos. And it's where we get our English word election, not in terms of the election like the presidential one that's coming. But this is the the word that some of you have heard theologians use, where it talks about how we are elected by God. And then he goes on and he uses another huge theological concept because he talks about how we were chosen in him before the world even began. This is called predestination. Now, these are two concepts that we don't have time to cover today because they're so large with all that Paul's piling on. So what I want to do is separate uh, these concepts of election and predestination and move those to next week. We're going to come back next week and dive in and unpack what those two things mean for us. But as we talk about uh, how we are elected, how we're saved, Paul tells us that one of those, uh, the way that that all happens is through grace. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. The way that we come to be in Christ is found in John 1, 12. There it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so this, this idea of God's grace and that's how we're saved is something Paul understood, not just through the Holy Spirit communicating through him, but through what had happened in Paul's own life. As you look at his greeting, how does he introduce himself to these uh, Ephesian Christians? He says in verse 1, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. See, what Paul's saying here is, I didn't choose uh, to become a part of the church. God chose me. He went after me. Remember, Paul in that day wasn't pursuing Christ. Paul wasn't trying to be in the church. What he was trying to do was wipe the church out. Remember in Acts, we saw three different times Paul talked about his experience on the road to Damascus. And Paul, as you'll recall, was a guy trying to wipe out the church. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr, uh, was killed. And then Paul, shortly thereafter, received letters from the Jewish leadership to go to Damascus, pursuing the Christians who had fled there. And he said, I was on my way to Damascus to persecute them, to drag them back, to arrest them, put them back on trial. But Jesus Christ intervened. Paul had that Damascus Road experience where the resurrected Lord appeared in a bright light. And he he knocked Paul literally off his high horse. And he said, Saul, Saul, Paul's Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus Christ. And and Paul became a believer. And instead of trying to wipe out the church, he then began one who was planting and building the church. And Paul says that I'm an apostle. This is a title that, that speaks of somebody who's not only a believer, but it's one who has seen the resurrected Lord. You and I today can't be apostles, but we are still called to be messengers, just as Paul was. As you read in uh, 1 Peter 2.9, it tells us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has called on us to be messengers of the gospel. Now, you may be sitting here. Remember, we've already talked about feeling inadequate as a saint. And you may say, well, Roger, I'm definitely not uh, qualified to be somebody who tells somebody else about Christ. Because as you look at my life, my life is a mess. And how could God use somebody like me? Read all throughout the scriptures and see the people that God used. Drunks, liars, murderers, adulterers. You go down the list and you pick the categories that may fit who you are. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. The Bible tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us we're all separated from Christ. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. So none of us by nature of who we are are really qualified to be a spokesman for God. I feel inadequate uh, to be a pastor who has the privilege of sharing God's word. But again, what I understand is my position is not based upon who Roger is. It's based upon what Christ has done as he's imparted his righteousness to me and to you. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're saying, well, Roger, I'm not even a believer because I've made so much of a big mess of my life that I don't think God would ever have me. If that's what you think, I want you to read Romans 5.8. Because in Romans 5.8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that means is while you were at your worst, when you were in rebellion, when you were running from God, Christ died for you. It means he loves you just like you are. You don't have to, to get better to, to, to be received by the Lord first. That's like saying you're so sick, you can't go to the hospital until you get better. God has called us as we are, but he, he doesn't want us to stay as we are. And that's what Paul is going to be telling us through this letter. He spends the first part of the book telling us who we are in Christ. And then he tells us how we're to live as Christians. And so what Paul wants us to be is like him. He was a mess. But he came to faith, he was redeemed, and then he became a messenger of Christ. Now, as you think in terms of that, you may say, but Roger, Paul was this great theologian. He was this guy who was gifted by God to share the word, and and I, I can't do that. I'm not Paul. No, you're not, and neither am I. But I want you to think in terms of the limitations that Paul had. You may feel inadequate. You may feel there are barriers to you being an effective witness. But what about Paul? Do you remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter? When we finish the book of Acts, he was in a Roman prison. He was chained to a guard. And this is where Paul is writing these letters to the Ephesians, to Romans, to others. He's a guy, as he's talking about our freedom in Christ, how we've received grace and we're to be messengers of the good news. Paul is one that doesn't have freedom. He's chained to a soldier. He's one who has lost all of his his possessions. He's, He's a prisoner of Rome. And yet Paul was one who said, okay, I've got a captive audience. This guy's chained to me. He's sharing the gospel with the guard. And then he's sharing with the family, and he's sharing the royal family and others around. I want you to think in terms of where you are, where God has placed you, and the people in front of you. And you may see the roadblocks, but again, I want you to think of the Ephesian Christians to whom Paul is writing. Uh, They had obstacles. Uh, Remember, we've already talked about Ephesus. It's It was this place that had the the temple of Artemis, but Ephesus was a city of 250,000 people. It was one of the largest cities in the the world at the time. And it was was an interesting place. Uh, You've seen pictures of this. Again, when we went through Acts, we talked about the city of Ephesus. And this is a, 
uh, an amphitheater, a stadium that is there in the ruins of Ephesus, and it seats 25,000 people. And if you've ever been to the AT&T Center where the Spurs play, the way it's configured for basketball, you put about 19,000 people in it. So there were 6,000 more people that were here in the, that could go into the stadium. So that was about one in 10 in the city could go into the stadium. There were 250,000 people. I told you that the, the temple to Artemis was there. Remember that this was a, a banking center. Uh, this, Ephesus was an economic powerhouse. They had a deep water port. They, had, uh, they were connected to the trade routes in the, in the area of Asia. So this was a center of commerce. And you had this, this temple that people came from all over the world to see. Remember, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. The thing was bigger than a football field. It was 60 feet in height. It had 130 columns. 37 of those were encrusted with gold and jewels. It was the kind of place you walked into and just said, wow, this is, this is amazing. And so think of the Christians in that day. They're here in Ephesus, and they're battling against the culture of the city. They're a minority, a small group of people. They're meeting in houses. They're meeting out in, you know, outside venues because they don't have a building. And you're saying, well, why would people want to come to Christ when they can go to this beautiful uh, temple? And these were the things that they were battling against in that day. Now, as you think of this city, I want to show you another slide. This one is, is another picture of that stadium that I just showed you there in Ephesus because I want you to see what it's like. Imagine yourself down there in that white platform area on the floor of this. And remember, there's 25,000 people there because this is the backdrop for what I want to read from Acts chapter 19. Back in Acts 19, 24 and following, we saw an event that happened as Paul the pastor was there in the city. And this is what he tells us in Acts 19, 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and with the workmen of similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that this temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she of whom all of Asia and the world worship even will be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, and they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends sent to him repeatedly, urging him not to venture into the theater. They say, Paul, you're going to be you're going to be torn apart. You're going to be lynched if you go in there. So then some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not even know for what reason they had come together. Kind of sounds like our world, doesn't it? Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. So they've dragged this guy out. They found some representative. He's there and he goes, hey, hey, can I, can I say something? 
Verse 34 tells us, But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them, and they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. You're standing center court at the AT&T Center, and you say, Hey, can I say something about Jesus Christ? And every time you open your mouth, the crowd drowns you out. That's what the Christians in that day were facing. And I want you to picture and linger over that in your mind for a moment because I know some of you are going to go back to school on Monday and you're going to stand among a a handful of your peers and you're going to say, let me tell you something about my faith in Christ. And they're going to begin laughing at you or mocking you or shouting at you. And in that moment where you're feeling, uh, how can I stand up to this? I want you to, to think of the guy standing in front of tens of thousands of people shouting at him for two straight hours. When you go to your workplace and you try to stand for Christ and you have a supervisor or corporate or some other part of the organization that, again, is, is just belittling you and making you feel like, what are you doing? Think of the believers in that city, 250,000 people. And only a handful of Christians. And it says because they stood for Christ, because they let their light shine, they were bankrupting the business of the city. The labor unions had blackballed all the believers. You're not going to work for us. It says the silversmiths and all the trades that were making money from the pagan worship. The Christians were persona non grata. The city leaders were against them. And it says that this small band of believers, as they stood for Christ, did what? They changed the whole culture of the city, not just of Ephesus, but beyond. They were saying, look, the the worship of our pagan goddess is falling into disrepute. People are no longer coming to the temple. People think it's worthless. They're saying, oh, come on, you know, a thing made out of hands, a little idol is no God at all. And that's what God says we can do in our day. That's the impact that you as an individual believer can have in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school, your workplace, the base in which you serve, that as you stand for Christ, and these believers were standing for Christ, as you look at what Paul says, he says there in verse 1 that they were being faithful, standing for Christ. Now, in terms of what God has given to us, you may again say, but Roger, I'm not the Apostle Paul. But friends, we have all that the Apostle Paul had. All throughout the book of Ephesians, uh, we're going to see, remember, he, he tells us in verses 13 through 14 that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God resident within us, as we saw all throughout Acts, that the believers in that day had given the, been given the power and presence of God, the Holy Spirit resident within them. We have that. We've been given the entrustment of the gospel message. In fact, we have more than Paul ever have. We have the, the entirety of God's revelation in the Bible. So we have what we need to share the good news of the gospel. As we go through Ephesians, we're going to see that in chapter 6, Paul is going to talk about the full armor of God that we've been given to be able to stand firm against the things that we face in this world. And he says in verse 3 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There was this other cartoon that I saw. I don't read cartoons all day. I don't want you to think that's what I do. But there was this cartoon, and it showed a lawyer uh, that was reading the last will and testament of a family member. 
And the way the artist had drawn it, the, the attorney is sitting at the head of the conference table, and there's this, this group of relatives that, you know, have this greedy look, and they're all waiting to find out what it is they're going to inherit. And the, the attorney, as he begins, he, he says, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. And you can imagine what the, the faces of these greedy relatives looked like. When it comes to Jesus Christ, he didn't spend it all. He paid it all. So we look at what the Bible tells us. Jesus paid it all, making it possible for us to be adopted as children and therefore to share in the heavenly inheritance. We've been given, God says, immense blessings, wealth beyond anything that we, we can ever imagine. And it's not because we've earned it. It's not because we deserve it. It's because God gave it to us, remember Paul said, through charis, grace. If you think in terms of what we deserve, the Bible's very clear about what we deserve. Remember, we're all sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if we get what we deserve, justice would be that we're separated from God for all eternity. Because as sinners, the wage, what we've earned, is death separation from God. That would be justice. Now, mercy has been defined as not getting what we deserve. But God goes beyond that. Remember, Paul's talking about God's grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor, where he gives us what we don't deserve. You can illustrate it this way. Think in terms of a judge who's sitting on the bench. You know, he or she is there as the the administrator of justice, and you come before the judge, and the person says to you, are you guilty of the crime? And our crime is sin. And we say, yes, we've sinned. And God says, well, then you owe the penalty of separation, the second death, eternal separation from God. Now imagine that God is that, and God is a holy and just judge. The penalty has to be paid. So if he were just a God of justice, he would say, you're all going to hell. You're all separated from me because you owe that penalty. Now mercy would be where the judge on the bench says, you know, how can I give you the lightest possible sentence? Let me hear any extenuating circumstances. Let me figure out how I can, you know, leverage any good behavior or anything else in your background. That would be mercy where we don't get what we deserve. But grace, grace is what we're given. And what that means is the judge got down off the bench, took off his robe, walked alongside us, put his arm around us, and then said, let me pay your penalty for you. And the judge drains his bank account to pay our penalty in full. And then grace doesn't stop there. What grace says is the judge then turns to us and says, uh, I want to adopt you. I want to bring you home as my son, as my daughter. And we're taken home and we're given all the rights and privileges of being a member of the family. That's what God did for us. Because God is the one who is the judge who was on the throne. And what he did was he took off his robe And he stepped down onto earth, putting on flesh and blood. And it says he paid our penalty, the penalty of death, as he went to the cross. And he didn't stop there, but he said, I want to adopt you as a son, a daughter of mine. I want to take you home with me to heaven. And I want you to have all the riches of heaven. Stuart Briscoe says, many people who recognize their sinfulness would be glad if God just would offer them mercy. 
But what they don't understand is that mercy without grace is not only inadequate to meet our human need, but it's also totally inadequate to be an expression of God's character. You see, the Bible illustrates for us who God is. If you read Luke chapter 15, have you ever read the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son, as you'll recall, was a, a, a boy who was in the home, and he said to his father, I, wanna, I want my inheritance. I want to go off and live my life like I want. And he went and lived a, a sin-filled, debauchery type of lifestyle. And there hit a point where he had burned up all of his, his resources. He had hit rock bottom. And as he's groveling literally in the dirt, feeding pigs as a Jew, that was the, you know, Jews were not allowed to be around pigs. They were unclean animals, and he's feeding them, and he's longing to eat what they have. That's how rock bottom this guy had hit. And it says that this son who had run away from home and his father said, I'm going to go back to my father's house, and I'm going to repent. I'm going to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I'm going to humble myself and say to my father, who represents God in the parable, I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. Make me a slave. Let me just serve as a slave in your house. And it says, God, the father, the father in the story was waiting and watching, expecting that the son might one day come home. And as he sees the son coming home, he ran to him and he embraced him. As the son uh, comes before the father, he says, dad, I got the speech. Let me say it. I blew it. I don't deserve to be your son. Just make me a slave. And do you remember what the father did? Mercy would have just been him saying, okay, you get to be a slave. You get to be on the estate again. You get to to work. He didn't give mercy. He gave grace. He said, you're my son. He calls everybody together. My son has come home. Bring the best robe, put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a feast. That was grace. He said, you're not a slave. You're my son. You've come home. That's what God does for us. He doesn't just administer justice. He has to do that as a holy God, which is why he paid the penalty himself. He said, I've covered the debt. He doesn't give us mercy where he says, okay, that's it. When you die, you just cease to exist. That would be mercy. So we didn't suffer for all eternity. Instead, he gives grace and he says, if you will come to my son, be in Christ. You get to be in heaven, in home with me for all eternity. Remember, Jesus Christ said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. He said, I go ahead to prepare a place for you. Jesus says, when our life is over here on earth, those who are in Christ have a place in his daddy's house. And we get to be with him for all eternity. Now, this, this is what the cross means for us. See, through the cross, we don't face ridicule or rejection. Instead, what we face is unmerited grace. And through grace, we've been given not just the promise of eternal life, but God has given us the, the gift of peace in the present. Look again at verse 2. Ephesians 2, 2 says, Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us peace where he says that broken relationship has been healed. He's restored the relationship. He's brought us back together in Christ. As you think in terms of of what that peace means, remember we've been placed safe and secure in that nail-scarred hand of Christ, and he's covered us. I want to illustrate it this way. 
There was a king who, who said, I want all the artisans of the, the kingdom to uh, take part in a contest. And there are great riches for the one who wins. And so they had this great motivation. And he said, here's, here's the, the theme. I want you to paint the picture of peace. The, the one who has the best picture of what peace looks like will win. And so all the artisans are at work and the day comes to turn in your work and, and there are lots of pictures that are turned in, many beautiful pictures. And the king cuts it down to two finalists and he tells the whole kingdom to come to the, the palace and there's going to be this unveiling of the winner. The two finalists are going to be presented. And so people gather and there are these two pictures covered over by a cloth and the king walks up to the first one and he pulls off the cloth and everybody looks and goes, oh, it's beautiful. You, you, you can just feel the serenity of the picture. It's this, this idyllic mountain scene. There's this beautiful uh, snow-capped peak, and there's a, a snowmelt river, I mean, a lake at the bottom, and it's, it's just perfectly still, so much that it looks like a mirror image of the mountain. And you see this. There's beautiful trees around. There's this meadow in the distance. The sky is just, just, just this really pretty blue with a few wispy clouds in it. And just as you're looking at the picture, you're like, oh, I feel peace. Now the king walks over to the second picture and he, he pulls the cover off and everybody thinks there's been a mistake because it's also a picture of a mountain. But this one is, is a dark, storm-covered mountain. The sky is dark black with jagged lightning piercing through the darkness. There's, there's a torrential rain falling. There's this, this river that is rushing over a bare precipice of rock. You can tell where the, the water is just beating upon this barren rock and it's creating this, this rushing river. And, and right by the river, there's a little outcropping of rock and just under it, there's a lone scrub type of tree, you know, just barely clinging to the side of the mountain. And people are looking at this going, what's going on? And then the, the king says this. This is the winner. And the crowd literally gasp, and they go, how can you pick that picture? How is that peace? And the king says, I want you all to come and look closely at the picture. Do you see that tree? Do you see it under that outcropping of rock, that tree barely clinging to the side? He said, I want you to look closely, and do you see what's there? There's a, there's a nest and I want you to look at the nest, and as you look at the nest, there's a bird, a mother bird sitting there in, in the nest, and her wing is out, and there are some, some baby birds under her wing. And there's this rushing river, remember, going over this barren rock, and, and, the, and the king says, this is a picture of true peace. Because in the midst of the storm, in the midst of all that is happening, here is the bird, safe and secure, sheltered in the storm, and at perfect peace. And that's the peace that God offers to us as believers. Read Philippians 4, 6, and 7. There it tells us, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, it says, let your requests be made known to God. And it says, the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, men and women, peace is not just when the sky is blue and the sun is shining and everything's great. Peace is also when we're in the midst of a raging storm and we're, we've been knocked to our feet and we don't know where to turn to. And what God says is, I've got you under the shelter, not of some rock outcropping, but I've got you in the shelter of my hand and I've closed it around you. And my father has closed his hand around you because you are in Christ. 
and you belong to me, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never let you go. That's the picture of peace. That's what God offers to us when we're in Christ. And as we talk about these nail-scarred hands of Christ that shelter us, they show up again in verses 7 and 8. As it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Do you know what that word lavished means? You ever sat down at a table and you, you had a grandma come up and just keep dropping more, you know, stuff on your plate and you're like, enough, stop, and oh, you need more and you need more. And that's what lavishing is. It's where we just pile on more and more and more and we go, enough, I can't handle any more. And oh, just one more bite, you can have more. That's lavishing. And that's what God does for us. He piles it on. As Paul is writing about all these riches, we're on this roller coaster of high point after high point. He says, and God has done this for you and this for you and this for you. And hey, guess what? There's more to come and there's more to come. Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous preacher of the past, talks about a minister of his day who was in a small struggling church. This was a faithful servant of God. This, this man was faithful, but the, the church was poor and could barely support this pastor. And that meant he could barely feed his own family. And there was a, a benefactor in that town, a person who knew of this faithful minister. And he said, he said I, want to, I, I, I want to meet this man's need. I want to extend uh, the love of God to this pastor who tells others of the love of God. So he said, I want to give him the gift of 100 British pounds. Now, that was a lot of money especially in light of what this pastor normally received. And he was afraid that dropping this huge gift on him would overwhelm the pastor at the time. And so he said, what I'm going to do is appoint an administrator, an anonymous person to bring an envelope to this pastor. And so one day this pastor gets this knock on the door and there's an envelope. The messenger just hands it to him and leaves. Well, the minister opens the thing and in it he finds five pounds. And there's a, there's a note that simply said, more to come. More to follow, more to come. The minister's like, wow, this is great. A few weeks later, there's a knock at the door. Another envelope is handed to him. He opens it, five more pounds, and a note that says, more to come. This happens a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. It happened over and over and over. Each time the note simply said, more to come. Imagine how sweet those words became to that pastor who every time he opened the letter before the hundred pounds was given saw the words and more to come. Brothers and sisters, that's what Paul tells us today. Not only have we been blessed beyond measure already, but what he says is, and there is more to follow. There's more to come. God just continues to pile it on and on and on as we're going to see all throughout the book of Ephesians. So as we come back next week, we're going to see where God says, and there's more to come. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you that we are those who have been adopted as your children. You tell us in verse 5 that as those who belong to you, we have received a heavenly inheritance. We thank you, God, that we don't have to live in this world as spiritual paupers. But instead, we are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we have a position as a part of your family. 
and as those who have received great riches beyond any measure, things so much more important and lasting than the wealth of the world, just the heavenly riches, you call us to be your messengers of grace, to go and share with others of the riches that are available to them. So, Father, would we be found faithful, not only to live according to the the position that we have as your children, but also as your messengers. So send us out as messengers of grace, we pray in Jesus' name.